Hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, Caleb. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I'm doing excellent. Uh, how are, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking a classic Manhattan, uh, bullet rye, sweet vermouth, and some really nice cherries and some special bitters. So um, I'm quite enjoying it. How about yourself? I am closing out uh, Negroni week here by having a Negroni. At the, at the time of our taping, we are in the waning hours of Negroni week. Um, ah. So I'm, I'm having one last Negroni this week. Um, and I figured we could uh, dive back into our autonomous car discussion. Yeah, and actually we had some great uh, discussion over the past three episodes on the, the Reddit subreddit as well as on our comments. And one that stuck out to me was uh, a, a listener was talking about a supposed uh, conspiracy theory in um, Los Angeles. And, and then right before the show, you were mentioning you had some context for this. Oh, yeah. When I, I lived in Seattle um, and I lived in the central district of Seattle and there was the roads were always a little gnarly and they were talking about paving over them and they were having problems because uh they had just paved over the streetcar tracks in the middle of the streets and that just kind of blew my mind because i was having to walk everywhere and have a i have a vespa scooter so i was vespering around and it would have been so nice to be able to just hop on a some sort of public transportation but apparently it had all been paved over and and yeah in researching that i had stumbled also upon the gm uh streetcar conspiracy which is what that they Uh, which is this well i don't i mean i think it sounds pretty legit uh but it is a conspiracy (laughs) um technically i guess i don't know i'm not sure uh but the idea that as cars were becoming the um sort of predominant method yeah the the predominant method of transportation that the car companies were gaining political clout and there was a lot of um political local political action towards destroying or or migrating away from the existing streetcar lines uh, which were pretty popular in most large uh, municipal areas and paving over them in providing more accommodations for cars um, I see back when cars weren't as ubiquitous as they are now so this is kind of you know you're thinking of even before the 57 Chevys and and the sort of classic cars this was before that um, and yeah that that there was a lot of uh, monetary interests that were kind of pushing things in a certain direction that may or may not have been uh, ideal for the towns uh, but were ideal for the com- companies that were selling all the cars yeah and the people buying them to be fair I mean a lot of people wanted to own their own vehicle and they needed a place to drive them and uh, streets back then before our uh, roads were really designed for cars uh, were very dangerous and slow places for cars, both for the drivers and the pedestrians. So, um, And so, the horses that were still on the roads. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting one, right? This um, That might be sort of the best metaphor for what's about to happen. We're going to have horses and cars on the road, and uh, the modern-day equivalent is going to be self-driving cars and cars being driven by humans. Um, so the humans are the horses in this analogy? Yes, the humans are the horses, and uh, they're quite nice, but we don't need them doing this particular job anymore. Indeed. So this week, I guess we wanted to talk a bit more on some of the um, practical elements of self-driving vehicles in the future. So what happens to the physical cars? Uh, what happens to the regulatory environment that will allow cars and how we might how that might sort of shape out um, what happens to insurance, um, and uh, yeah, sort of dig into some of those topics and 
this might be the last uh, episode in this series of, of self-driving cars. I'm sure we'll, we'll revisit it. Oh, shut it. your mouth. I know. I'm sure we'll re- revisit it uh, soon, but um, this is sort of the last in our planned um, planned series, I guess. So, Do you remember how many episodes we have until the Model 3 is released? I, I haven't done the math, but mentally it's, uh, it's definitely quite a few. So it really <laughs> depends on when we decide to um, claim victory of making it uh the first vehicle on the road that is uh, a a driver by you know tesla or spacex employee or is it production so you know that could be months uh, of extra episodes <laughs> um but anyways where do you want to start mike what i mean we've got a roulette of options so let's spin that wheel um all right i just spun it and let's say it landed on insurance um insurance is probably a little specific but this idea of the whole like regulatory regime around how we are comfortable getting in vehicles and just hurling ourselves through our built environment at 70 miles an hour. Um, part of that is insurance. Part of it is car safety. Yeah. Uh, part of it is just this, oh man, I forget who, there's a famous quote about how anything that was uh, invented after you were born is like, scary technology and everything that was beforehand is just the way things are oh right yeah Um, and yeah so like right now we're in this environment where buying a car and paying monthly auto insurance is just normal and that's what you do and you turn 16 and you take a driving test and you get your license and that is just it's crazy to think of anything else and it's I think self-driving cars are the biggest jolt to that system that we've had uh in certainly in my lifetime um yeah i mean i think that the yeah that's right and that definitely resonates with me that that quote and i remember that being brought up especially in the context of uh smartphones and all sorts of previous technology that it 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 definitely tends to separate out that way where you know young people uh children who are born in the past decade a touchscreen everything every screen they see is a, is a, perceived to be a touchscreen they want to touch um yeah, they want to see magazines and newspapers they're touching yeah, yeah. they're swiping they want to see a photo instantly uh, even even for me you know the idea of uh, having a photo instantly is is starting to wear off but I, I remember when you had to take the film and wait a week before you could get it back and 24-hour photos were was a pretty big innovation <laughs> you dinosaur i know i'm ancient um but uh yeah i guess sort of stepping back the the reason that we have car insurance uh, and regulation around cars is to our earlier conversation about cars being very dangerous and dangerous things causing damage to uh, person and property. And so uh, our governments have created rules to uh, try and mitigate the risk of these uh, vehicles because we've deemed them necessary for uh, modern society and so we've sort of have this bargain where we know they're dangerous but we want to create some sort of regulatory framework to protect us and yeah. we've elected the government to do that for us right yeah and it's interesting how if you travel around the world too how different that can be like i was in thailand uh earlier uh, late last year and it was astounding to me i read earlier before i went that thailand was one of the deadliest countries in the world for auto accidents and then I arrived there and like spending time in Bangkok and it is just utter chaos. The number of like mm-hmm. scooters and cars and these little tuk tuks like that are flying around and it's flying. Well, not flying, but uh, okay. well, sometimes I guess. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Both they, wheels they, off the ground. <laughs> yeah. 
the roads are mostly in good shape, but yeah, it, it certainly, once you start getting out of the city, uh, it can get a little hairy. Uh, but yeah, it just, it just kind of gave me a little bit of uh, perspective on how it is just a sort of societal agreement that we all have that like, we've all agreed that this is going to be a thing uh, that we're going to drive on the right side and that we're going to, you know, watch a certain speed limit and we're going to behave in certain ways. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very, uh, not organic, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's nebulous, I guess, or, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, it's just this combination of both social norms on how you, how you deal with traffic, how you deal with people in vehicles, um, that there's a, there's a general sense that, um, well, not it's, it's baked into the law that vehicles need to yield to, uh, to pedestrians and cyclists all the way to, the fact that um, many states, uh, at least in the United States, have a- a no-fault insurance policies, which essentially mean that if you get into an accident, it, they're not even investigating uh, whose fault it is. It, it's just generally built into the policies that it will be paid for um, because at this point, uh, the accident rate is, is actually quite low in the U.S. Um, relative to where it was before seatbelts in the, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and that uh, it's just sort of baked into the premiums. Um, and- it's interesting how it, it when you have like a slightly different social environment, like you have in, say, Russia, that you end up with like these sort of follow on effects of like dash cams are huge in Russia. And the only reason we have so much evidence to that recent um meteorite or meteor whatever mm-hmm. the one that kind of came down was because so many people driving around around in russia have dash cams because there's so many problems with insurance where people are jumping out in front of cars or right. causing accidents and that people have taken this defensive posture of installing inexpensive dash cams on their cars that are just recording what they're doing all the time well what's funny is that every single tesla also has a dash cam it's just not exposed to the user um, and I know you've talked about and, and thought a lot about what's going to happen when all these vehicles data is being used for different purposes beyond just the self-driving uh, capabilities in the moment. Um, Indeed. But I, we could jump back to that. But I guess um, jumping back to the insurance, I guess it, so the laws of the road um, currently dictate that licensed drivers must be operating vehicles, which seems obvious, but... Um, one of the challenges for the self-driving and autonomous vehicle movement is that up until now, uh, both Google and all of like Mercedes and Volvo and Tesla who have been doing experiments with uh, fully autonomous vehicles have had to uh, have steering wheels and um, uh, accelerators and brakes in the vehicles because under the current U.S. regulation at least, and I believe it's uh, international as well, cars, uh, the definition of a driver it sort of implies that there's going to be a steering wheel because it's implied that it's going to be a human. And so the law was not built with the assumption that a computer would be able to be a driver. And so up until extremely recently for the, you know, for the past decade of this research, all autonomous vehicles have had to have someone, a licensed driver sitting in the driver's seat, even though the vehicle was driving itself and that, you know, driving itself is actually a computer on board acting as the driver. Right. Um, Similar to how, planes and autopilot work where when you take a a flight across the country most of that flight is very well conducted by the autopilot but there still is a licensed and uh, accomplished pilot there ready for taking over whenever necessary actually two right there's the the pilot and co-pilot i mean 
planes have a human redundancy uh, <laughs> yeah. minimum, and then things like the Air, like um, Air Force One have multiple pilots um, in the event that all that two of them get incapacitated. And um, then Harrison Ford can take over too, if absolutely necessary. Yes, exactly. Um, and and refuel. Um, <laughs> and so, I guess one of the things that's been interesting is that uh, Michigan. Uh, has recently changed their law um, so that a computer can be deemed the driver, um, and and so they they are not requiring people to be um, in in the vehicle. And also at the federal level, which is also required, the National Highway Safety Traffic Association uh, has allowed it so that um, you don't need to have a, a steering wheel or brakes and accelerator so that clears away for other states to allow that so basically that's really important because if you want to get to level four autonomy which is full nirvana level autonomy of the vehicle doing everything and you can fall asleep then it doesn't really make sense for there to be a licensed driver sitting being able to be there in a steering wheel because you don't need a steering wheel in that case so Right. Really and interesting. That, and that, that was just a few months ago. That was just February, I mean, of this year, of 2016. So w- within the past eight months or so, there's been changes to the legislation, less than that, five months, um, that allow uh, allow vehicles to be built and sold uh, potentially without steering wheels. I mean, that that's uh, a lot of change in 100-plus years um, yeah, of having a steering wheel. Is there any sort of – so when a, a human driver – gets behind the wheel they presumably have a driver's license is there any sort of uh plan for testing these vehicles like kind of like crash tests uh where the government will run like driver tests on them so the the rule expansion is just for testing purposes so uh the government hasn't yet laid out the regulations and certification process for self-driving vehicles to be sold uh, as such um, but they just needed to even clear the roads, uh, as it were, to allow these vehicles to be tested on public streets. Um, and so Google and others work with the federal regulators as well as the state regulators that allow self-driving vehicles. And at this point, there's over, I think, 16 states that have uh, have publicly come out and said and, and through legislation allowed self-driving vehicles in some capacity. Michigan, as you might expect, uh, Michigan is, is where um, the car industry in the U.S. is, is primarily uh, situated, um, with Detroit being the central hub. Uh, California being a quite progressive state as well as a technologically advanced state with many uh, Silicon Valley companies uh, working towards self-driving vehicles. And folks like Mercedes and Volvo having research centers here, uh, Nissan also has a recent research center focused on autonomous driving in California. So, so the uh, California has done it, and also Nevada um, has uh, very forward-thinking uh, legislators. So, it's currently believed that California, Nevada, and Michigan will set the tone for self-driving regulation um, because they're some of the most populous states in the context of California, and then also very strong. Um, thoughtfulness slash cooperation with automakers in Michigan. Um, and then Nevada is just sort of the wild card um, generally. Um, Does that so, have anything to do with the Gigafactory being there? Do you think? I, I'm not sure. It, it might be. I think, I think many of the states want to be on the forward-looking aspect for self-driving. And Florida just came out 
and uh, added some self-driving uh, uh, forward-thinking thoughts as well. And many of them uh, want to attract uh, vehicle manufacturing and also just be in good graces of these uh, technology companies to set up research centers in their states um, for the job creation. And so they are currently deeming it uh, worthwhile to allow them to be there because right now you couldn't drive cross-country in a self-driving vehicle legally. Uh, and so each of these individual companies needs to test it in states where it's currently legal. Um, so one of the hurdles uh, that's been identified by many, including Elon Musk, is that um, the states really do, at least in the U.S. and then nation, uh, worldwide, need to come to some sort of benchmark uh, regulatory framework that will allow self-driving vehicles because it won't work if you try and drive cross-country in the U.S. and you have to your your vehicle isn't legal in one of the states you need to pass through because right. it doesn't have a, a steering wheel. Yeah. And so same with driver's license, like it wouldn't be very useful if you had to like be relicensed in each state. Yeah, and I mean we figured this out with driver's licenses um and it's pretty amazing that it works. I mean, you can have an international driver's license and and go all a lot of places um and be deemed a, a driver um even though you haven't taken that local test. Um and, uh, and and also that the vehicles themselves, um, there's a very strong economic incentive for the vehicles to be able to be sold worldwide. And so you can be sure that many automakers are lobbying and using a lot of their uh, funds for lobbying to ensure that the um, laws that are put in place are minimal and consistent. Um, and Especially with regards to trucking too, that we talked about earlier too. Because if you can't if you can't have an autonomous truck that can be legal in every state, then it's really not all that useful for interstate commerce. Exactly. And one of the other things too is that on its back, and and the really sort of positive aspect is as we've talked about in the past is the safety aspect, where the automakers want to prove very clearly that these vehicles are safer. And so it would be irresponsible for the states not to, A, allow it, and um, B, uh, be consistent with other states. So um, what's interesting is in the context of insurance, uh, insurance is a, is a hundred billion, multi-hundred billion dollar industry in the U.S. and a trillion dollar industry uh, worldwide for uh, personal automobiles, commercial um, and, uh, and, and personal injury for, from, from automobile accidents. And um, one of the things that has been happening in the context of self-driving vehicles is insurance will change. And the primary reasons are insurance premiums are built on actuarial tables, um, so sort of statistical models around how many accidents are likely to happen based on things like how old you are, how long you've been driving, what gender you are, uh, yeah, what state certainly. you live in, what vehicle you're driving, and all of that is going to get mixed up uh, pretty dramatically when it's a computer uh, being the one who's actually driving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting when you think about, um, like right now, it's it seems like a given that you have auto insurance. It's just like almost a tax that you pay to be able to drive, but you don't actually pay for like a train insurance or a taxi insurance or a subway insurance for other ways that you get around. You don't, there's no airplane insurance. Um, so when it becomes a, a method of transportation that you yourself are not in control of, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And what's interesting um, is 
many folks in the industry have pointed that out, um, that as uh, transportation uh, in vehicles and cars becomes much more like you pointed out, like trains and planes and automobiles, uh, well, and soon automobiles in that category, <laughs> that uh, it will fall to the uh, service provider and also as a pass through the manufacturer uh, to be liable. So in a plane accident, um, it is both the insurance that the uh, uh, carrier, so the Delta or United or Virgin America or Virgin Atlantic carry, pays for it. If there's a mechanical failure, Boeing or Airbus is also partially responsible. And then also the government step in in the case where there's some uh, big repair that needs to be done because they view it just as sort of a, a general good and thing that the, the general population is going to pay for because it happens so rarely. Um, and one of the interesting cases that came up as an example for this sort of no-fault uh, concern is you could imagine that the price of insurance could be quite high still or that maybe no individual person has insurance. It's just you have to pay for it because we know that you were the one who caused the accident because you took control or you did something weird. Um, one of the one of the concerns was uh, that was similar was this idea that uh, ins- uh, vaccinations, uh, sort of far afield, but if a vaccination were to cause a child to die, um, there was a big fear that vaccinations would, no parent would, would take their kids to be vaccinated. Um, and so there was actual spe- special laws added in the U.S. at least um, that would put, um, the, the manufacturer wasn't necessarily at fault um, and the government would pay for any issue if there was sort of a bad batch. Um, they would then do an investigation of the uh, of the manufacturer but in that way, manufacturers wouldn't be afraid to create vaccinations because vaccinations were considered a public good. And so they didn't want to create a framework where people would be afraid to produce vaccinations because they were needed. Right. And so, so like one in a million still means when you have 300 million people that there might be 300 people that will. Right. Like and that do. might be a very, very large uh, settlement if your vaccine was seen to cause the death of, of many children. Yeah. Um, but it saved hundreds of millions of other children previously. Um, and so something, there've been some legal scholars who've, who've sort of proposed that a similar system be put in place for autonomous driving, that the public good of autonomous driving is so great that, um, even though there will be accidents, that the rate of accidents will be so low that the government should, um, be prepared to foot the bill and um, that we sort of collectively pay for uh, these insurance incidents because uh, the likelihood of needing the insurance goes way down. So what's interesting is that hurts the insurance industry quite greatly uh, because uh, 250,000 or so people are, ins- uh, are employed by the insurance agency in the U.S. alone. Um, and, and even people who own insurance companies like Warren Buffett are very cognizant uh, that this is coming and have stated publicly that they think it's good that uh, auto uh, autonomous driving is coming, that uh, the constant improvement in safety has been uh, sort of in progress since Ralph Nader really started pushing seatbelt laws. Um, 
in the U.S. Uh, many decades ago, and that insurance premiums have gone down over time because the cars are safer to insure. Um, but he cautioned that it's going to be many, many years, and he, um, he, you know, he, he's not doing anything right now uh, to prepare. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that that you can kind of foresee a lot of things that will happen when all cars are self-driving, and then there's the way things are now. And it's that sort of interim period that's kind of fascinating. Right, because there will be some autonomous vehicles soon. And, you know, I don't know if you go and get a GEICO policy, if it will take into into account. I mean, I don't even think that GEICO or Progressive or any of the major auto insurances in the U.S. take into account that, uh, you know, the Tesla with autopilot is a safer vehicle. Um, and when will that start happening? I think that's really interesting. Um, it seems as if that won't happen until the data has been made much more public. Um, and Tesla's already said that they're going to share this data with the U.S. Department of Transportation if they want it. Um, and so that can then become part of the public record. Uh, and so then that would be a, a public verifiable source that insurance companies could use in their models that, oh, you're driving a Model 3. Uh, it is a much safer vehicle, and therefore um, your rates can be lower. And that will uh, continually you know, be a, a slight economic benefit to those people, which will drive more people to want to purchase those sorts of vehicles. So it, it may start tipping very slowly, um, but safer vehicles are cheaper to insure. Um, and so they, um, they tend to be more, uh, more desirable. The counterweight, obviously, is that these vehicles will probably be more expensive because they are brand new technology vehicles that start vehicles that start at the high end. And so uh, the counterforce to that is that expensive vehicles are expensive to insure because um, they are more costly to repair uh, in a catastrophic accident, which is more likely these days than the fender benders and things because they're just generally safer. Um, well, and they're designed to like self-destruct to save the occupants with, with all the crumple zones and stuff. But I, mean, I think the important uh, or the encouraging part is that it's it's hard to imagine a less uh, politically um, important demographic than the insurance companies. I mean, no one is is crying for the insurance companies. Everyone views it as this sort of burden that they have to that they have to pay. So if I, I don't think they have much political clout other than their dollars. So that's probably pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think there it is a very competitive market. I mean, and that's a positive thing, that there are many, many insurance companies, and they fight uh, very much. You know, the, the number of uh, advertising dollars spent on uh, insurance is extremely high because it's such a long lifetime value. And so people, insurance companies are fighting very hard to get you to switch. Um, you know, oh, you, we've all seen those ads. And so <laughs> if they come out and have a policy for those who have self-driving cars and how much cheaper it is, uh, they, they will be able to be more profitable and, uh, they will want that and they'll get more customers. They know it's cheaper to insure. So I, I kind of think that the insurance companies with the profit motive they have and the very competitive industry they're in will, um, will take to this in stride. Um, and I'm not foreseeing a huge issue with the insurance companies. Um, I think the regulation issue is more troublesome just because the cycle time is so much slower and there's less political will to be associated with something that potentially could come back and fight, uh, sort of, 
hit you in the face as a negative when the first person dies in an autonomous vehicle in your state, uh, that is not going to be a very pretty day. Um, even though there are thousands of people dying in your state every year from regular auto accidents, uh, that will not be the headline. Um, and so that seems like the riskier thing. Um, but again, the political clout already seems to be shifting. So, um, that's, that's promising that there's already ways for these autonomous vehicles to be on the road and testing purposes. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, Tesla, Volvo, Mercedes, uh, actually, uh, Mercedes and Volvo have come out and said that they will be responsible for the insurance. Uh, they will, they will take on the liability in their autonomous vehicles. And they've said that publicly. Uh, and so I think that also is a strong sign to regulators that these, these companies are, are willing to take on the risk. And that's a very big financial risk um, if something were to go wrong. So that's, that's, um, that's definitely easier for the regulators to um, point the finger uh, at the car companies. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I, but all, humans are always going to be involved. I, I was just in uh, South Carolina this weekend and uh, or last week. And I, I was driving to a coffee shop there, and in one direction, uh, there was a sign over the street that said, uh, drive safely, 398 people have been killed so far this year in South Carolina, which, you know, it is June now, so like mm-hmm. not even half a year. And then on the way back, I'm driving, and in front of me is a man on a motorcycle with no helmet on his head, but one helmet like fastened to the side of his bike, like not wearing it. So I don't know. I feel like there's this whole like hashtag humans uh, problem to deal with. We don't make the best decisions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> that's tough. Um, can't explain those guys, the humans. Um, so let's, how about we pivot into like, what will, the uh autonomous driving due to what a car actually is like the yes like what does it look like what does it do uh what do you have for for thoughts on that like how will how will autonomous driving change what we think of as a car yeah so i think there's a there's a couple big things and i i personally wrestle with um two diverging outcomes actually three three diverging outcomes so well, they're not it, diverging at that point. Sorry, three separate vectors <laughs> exiting from our current point. Gotcha. Okay, so, but if I step back, the, the big thing is we've already had driverless vehicles, and they were stagecoaches. The people inside the stagecoach were rich and uh, enjoying their leisure time on their very long journeys across the country and across the world. And they had drivers in the front driving the piloting, the horsemaning the horses. And um, the people inside the carriage were enjoying the lap of luxury in a very nicely upholstered. Sort of. I mean, it was a pretty rough ride. It was a rough ride. I mean, we didn't have uh, airbag shock absorbers. But um, basically, my point is, I think we will have a return to that concept uh, of of a kind of a limousine effect yes uh where the vehicle inside for the cabin compartment will be unrecognizable from a vehicle today where the orientation of sitting and the overall quality of the experience inside will be elevated to the point where 
it is more like being in first class on a train than being in a car. You, you don't have to go back to stagecoaches either. There is an interesting article in The Economist uh, last year or the year before about how celebrities in L.A., uh, they, they specifically uh, featured Dr. Dre as one of them, are buying these sort of customized vehicles, mostly vans and Escalades, uh, from this company that makes essentially mobile offices. And they just have a chauffeur so that all the time they're stuck in the L.A. traffic, they're able to still do things. They're able to, like, essentially, well, like, have a mobile office or mm-hmm. have or watch. I think Dr. Dre had a, some quote about watching Martin Scorsese movies to relax. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems something like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the big thing we get back uh, individually from self-driving vehicles is time. That we can reallocate time spent looking out the windshield driving to some other activity. And so the question in my mind on the physicality of the cabin is, is that directed to um, short-term, short-range activities like listening to music, watching a TV show or a movie where the cabin can be like a first-class cabin or a really nice limo where it's still intended for sitting in for a few hours but not for a day or two. You're still obviously in a car at that point. or Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or does it go the other way where it becomes more like the experience you just had of a cruise ship Uh, but mini like an RV. And is it much more like an inhabitable space that moves and it happens to be very small relative to your normal home, but everything that you would want to do, you could do on the go. Uh, Those seem, those are like, those are two areas. Uh, And then the the other, I guess, layered on, I I misspoke. There's actually four. It's sort of a quadrant. Oh, my God. We went from two to three to four. I'm sorry. So so then the, and then, then we'll dig into them. The other, then the other two axes, I think, are personal ownership to company shared ownership. So uh, a la Uber, Lyft, DD, all those folks. So I own this vehicle. I paid for it with my own hard-earned money or have a, a loan on it. (laughs) <laughs> to a, uh, I summon a vehicle of my choosing and I don't own it. I am using it as a service similar to an airplane unless I'm uber rich. Um, so, <laughs> no pun intended. Right. So those are the four components that I see. What am I missing? And maybe we maybe just jump into those concepts and what do we think it's going to be like and what time horizons? Yeah, no, I think those are interesting ways to break it down. Uh, I'm very partial to this idea of uh, self-driving cars kind of becoming RVs, essentially. Uh, But I think that is in stark contrast to... uh, I I think RVs are hyper-personalized, and it's essentially your home at that point. And um, anything that is a utility i guess is is inherently less personal like when you're flying on an airplane you have a carry-on bag and you have to make sure that everything that you took in with you is with you as you're leaving because it's no longer your space Mm -hmm. and uh especially in our current personal car environment there is a strong bias towards that being your personal space and people make it very personal in that there's all their stuff that might be there they might have 
you know, no matter how dangerous it is, people have things on their dashboards that become flying projectiles in an accident. They might have things stuck to their dashboard that become uh, extreme projectiles when their airbags uh, deploy. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't really matter. It's it, it is a space that you're in for so long that you want to personalize it. I guess, kind of like yeah. being in a cube farm or something, right? You want to you want to personalize what little bit you have, like a cube I farm guess I would or, or jail cell. Yeah, I guess I would push back though. Like, I, I guess I, uh, the hotel is a concept where you, you similarly it's a shared space, but there are hotels that are far nicer than my home, and I like <laughs> them more because they're cleaned for me. They are very nice and compact and, and kind of fun to go visit, um, try something new. So uh, yeah, I totally yeah. agree with that. And I think that for, for, for me, that is definitely true. I, I think that the idea of this like car culture, at least in the United States, is very strong. And I, I think that is a strong uh, countervailing force that we're going to have to fight. Uh, or, or, you know, maybe it's generational too. Like millennials aren't buying cars at the same rate and aren't, aren't as excited about it. So maybe those people are just sort of dying off. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like with Uber, I use Uber quite a lot and I think you do too and Lyft and those guys. And I certainly enjoy when I get a nicer car on Uber. Like there's definitely a floor where I don't (laughs) like getting the 96 Corolla. Um, that's not a fun experience being a passenger. It's just weird when you don't get a Prius. Right. Yeah. Or, or sort of a night or sometimes I'll do the select if I'm going to the airport or coming back late from the airport, which isn't as nice as the black car, but it's still like a nice BMW or something like it is. It is nicer, right? Having that slightly premium experience. And um, but but there's some transferability in that concept where like a generally nice car is still much better than a really low quality car that's 20 years old. Sure. So. Yeah. It's more I, comfortable for, for one thing. Yeah. yeah, it's more comfortable. It's more confidence inspiring. Uh, I feel like the, yeah, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of signals. So you don't you want know, to be worrying about the crash rating of the vehicle as you're, as you're stepping into the backseat. Yeah, exactly. But, but I don't, um, so I would hope that it's sort of on par or better than the type of vehicle I personally would choose to drive. Um, but being the passenger, I don't really care about the driving dynamics as much. And and also, one of the other really intriguing components of this is when you're being driven by someone else, you would much prefer they drive with like an egg under their foot, where they're very <laughs> careful to accelerate, very careful to decelerate, and take turns extremely gently. Like, you just want to be comfortable. Right. Um, Ludicrous mode isn't all that exciting when when you're not the one pushing the pedal. Exactly. And I think that's one of the interesting components for Tesla is that they've had such a strong desire to compete on performance, which is actually sort of a more old-fashioned vector of of, uh, competition for vehicles where you're appealing to a buyer who is going to be the driver. And in a world where the buyer may not be the driver, the buyer may be a private equity firm or a ride-sharing company, and what they're looking for is lots of room. Like the Lincoln Town Car is not a great driving car, but it's got a ton of room in the back. It's very cushy, and uh, it generally uh, exudes a sense of executiveness, um, at least that we think so. Well, it's great driving for what it is, right? It, it's very, very boat-like. It has a very suspension that just hides all of the road. So it's it's designed to be very smooth. Right. So in, in the context of uh, self-driving, 
and uh, a fleet service where you're not owning the vehicle, you're not ever going to drive it under your own control, what vehicles become interesting in that regard are very different than the ludicrous, uh, you know, Tesla Roadster. Yeah, so, yeah. And so it's that, interesting that, like, the the ludicrous, like, Roadster BMW-level performance is not even something that you actually get to use in practice on on today's roads. It's It's really more of a... Uh, an aspiration or maybe Mm -hmm. some sort of like idea of what you could do on the autobahn or something but driving around the bay area in california you're really not using that very much right and it's something that you use to differentiate and talk about your own personality but when you're choosing a ride service or an airplane you know i don't feel a personal attachment to being in a you know mcdonald douglas (laughs) <laughs> plane versus an airbus versus a you know a boeing it doesn't say anything about me which plane i choose because it's not even a choice i have yeah and they never talk about which plane takes off faster or, or flies faster i mean since the concord has been retired i guess yeah exactly that that's that's a characteristic that the purchaser cares about so uber and lyft and dd and all the future companies are going to ca- care a lot more about you know how quickly it recharges how durable it is how easy is it to clean all of these different factors that today, when it's a single owner sort of concept, is not nearly as important, right? I guess the closest analog would be rental cars, and uh, unfortunately, rental cars sort of get the bottom barrel cars um, <laughs> because they buy so much and they get sort of the uh, the leftovers from the automakers that they miscalculated consumer demand for. Yeah, I, well, and I think the maybe even the right analog would be apartments. Or, or, or like you say, hotels, where yeah. um, I really do think that, that the the future of self-driving cars is, is more like, I, I had tweeted about this earlier, that like I'm just waiting for the day where Winnebago can sell me a self-driving RV. Because at a certain point, you don't even need an apartment. If you, and this is going completely to the other end of the spectrum where it's yeah, really far in the future. hyper-personalized. Yeah, and, and, and pretty far in the future where... It's why do you even need an apartment? Maybe you have an RV type vehicle that is self-driving and it drops you off at work and it just goes out somewhere to like the cheapest like parking area based on whatever the parking rates are for whatever sort of on-demand parking service there is. And it comes back and picks you up when it's time to get off of work and you get in it and it drives you around and maybe you don't even need to actually park anywhere or maybe you park somewhere outside the city and it drives you back in at some point or maybe drives you into a different area um and it you just wake up at work you shower and you get out of your vehicle and boom you're right there you don't have to actually worry about a commute it's just something that happened while you were sleeping yeah and and the other thing is that it can be driving around all the time so the the idea of owning land uh or physical space that you own is unnecessary i mean it could be parking in a parking lot at night or driving at a very slow rate somewhere in a, in a herd of all these other RVs. They sort of clobber together and drive in a pack, a caravan. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I haven't heard that many people talk about this concept. So if anyone has heard it, heard more or heard any talks, I'd love to dig into it. But Surely it's got to be out there. I'm, I'll, I'll throw out, here is my free business idea for anyone who is still listening to our inane ramblings at, at the, this far into our episode. Mm-hmm. If you have money, buy up some of these abandoned, decrepit suburban shopping malls and install charging stations in the parking lot and 
make them into town squares so that when self-driving RVs are a thing, they will take people from their offices and you will decide which little town square you want to go to for the night. Your RV plugs in, you walk out of your RV and you go into the town, you have a restaurants there, you have stores, you have a whole little like town center and then you sleep in your RV and at a certain point in the middle of the night, your RV just detaches from the charging station, drives you out to your office based on how long it's going to take to get there and boom, you wake up at your office. So turning a mall back into a mall. Yeah, I mean, well, but a mall of the future. Well, that's the thing is like, and I don't want to get too much into this, but like what we know of as suburban shopping malls in the United States were not originally designed to be what they became. Like the the man who actually invented them uh, had this idea where they would essentially be town squares and town mm-hmm. centers where people would come and congregate and shop and eat and. Uh, essentially he got like one or two of them developed and the developers decided, Oh, well we can just make them their own thing and surround them in seas of parking. And it sort of took off and it's kind of a a tragic story. I forget the guy's name, but uh, it's kind of interesting if you want to look him up. So that would sort of imply, so that, that is an ownership model, right? Where, or like instead of buying a home, you're going to buy this decked out RV Auto, auto bot version buy or the, rent i mean if you're sure. renting an apartment i guess you could yeah yeah, yeah. you could just you could rent pay monthly. those yeah and you could upgrade over time as you get a family and things like that to bigger and bigger ones like the 18 wheeler ones or whatever right i mean um, even the idea of like the size permittable size of vehicles is totally based on what humans can control so right. yeah yeah i mean we have the there's even the you know the uh, 18 wheelers that are double hitched um right that's or legal. triple hitched in some states yeah, so you could imagine that's quite a large house. Um, if people are living in shipping containers today, uh, yeah, as just look in Dwell Magazine. I know I'm looking at one right now. Um, <laughs> multiples. I need to read them. Um, so, so that's one path, and I think that's viable. I think that will take a lot longer, right? Because the societal impact of like, wait, you live in your house? Like, I guess there are people. I mean, there are definitely people who live in RVs and travel, but it. It yeah, isn't I mean, something you park, that young you can... people do. It tends to be a more of a retiree, like explore the world because of the working. Right. Like usually you work close to where you live and it's where you work is fixed. Right. Uh, but but that may be changing more and more. I mean, our company that I work at is is half remote already. Um, so, you know, it would also be possible that potentially your office is in there and you're working remotely as you're driving around to wherever you want to go. Yeah, it could be. I mean, or it could be just facilitating your commute. Um, you know, it, you, maybe you're working remotely or maybe it's actually just bringing you to your office while you're asleep. Um, I, I guess in multiple person households, that becomes a little more confusing and you, yeah. you start School. to get into a traveling salesman problem. But yeah. uh, at some point you could figure out uh, a way to do that. Oh, yeah. So, dropping kids off at school. Yeah. Yeah. So then the smaller, the opposite end is Google's vision that they've shown of these little prototypes that are two seaters. They're very cute, plastic, bubbly looking. Almost like a VW Beetle in a way. Yeah, like a half-size Beetle. Um, And this is their latest version of their prototype self-driving car. So they started with the Priuses that they were modifying for highway driving. Then they modified the Lexuses um, for more advanced sensors. And then they realized that uh, to really go to the level four that they really wanted to, they needed to improve a few things. So firstly... 
modifying someone else's vehicle has its inherent engineering disadvantages. Um, there's uh, challenges around the sensors being able to see as well as they would hope. And so one of the reasons the cars are so bubbly is that uh, they wanted all the angles to fall off and away from where the sensors are so that they wouldn't n- none of the car would actually be obstructing sensors. So that makes sense, but also yeah, that why. That brings it back to what we were talking about uh, last episode or the episode before about blind spots and how that doesn't necessarily make sense because you're not a human sitting in a specific singular place in the vehicle. Yeah, as long as the sensors can be mounted in a place where there is an inherent blind spot of the car's own you know mass right you could, um, put, you could put four eyes on four corners of the vehicle whereas a human has two eyes facing forward right so the the those cars are better there and then the other thing that they were saying was one they wanted to make it look uh cute and unassuming unintimidating unintimidating so that it would be more accepted by people yeah. so thinking about sort of the anthropological and cultural impact of the car and what this computer driving it will signal and not wanting to look intimidating didn't you pay something uh to me this today about uh the noises it might make too yeah so um they've also so one of the other things that they've been doing um is making sure that the cars interact with humans well uh when they're driving and one of the things that humans do when they drive is they honk the horn and self-driving cars up until recently have never honked their horn. Um, <laughs> they had never been instructed to do so. And um, there's nothing in the DMV handbook about honking except for that you really shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it was sort of this gray area of, well, should the, should these cars honk? And um, so Google recently published a paper about how they went through the process of, of allowing their self-driving cars and building the capability of honking um, and, and honking of different types, right? You sometimes double tap the horn real quick um, just to sort of signal to someone if they're uh, doing something a little silly, but at low speed in a parking lot, maybe about to back into you. So now the self-driving cars will double tap honk and do these little pips uh, to indicate to someone that's backing into them that they shouldn't because maybe the self-driving car can't back up because there's someone else behind it. And a human driver would indicate to them, hey, you know, through the horn, what are you doing? Don't back into me. Um, and then also being able to indicate more strongly with a with a solid horn um, that they, uh, you know, that, that someone's made a mistake actively that's dangerous, um, alerting them to, you know, swerving into something. And, um, and so they, they actually went through the process of having the horn be signaled in, inside the car first, uh, through validation to make sure that the drivers inside, uh, Google employees thought that they were doing a good job. And now they've indicated that they're actually doing it on the roads. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things that if it was all self-driving cars that were perfectly connected, uh, it would not be needed to have horns, but because these cars are going to go through an integration period of, uh, mixing with. Uh, cars being driven by humans they have to behave in certain flawed ways as well and um, the same way that humans do and one of those ways is through horns Uh, and so these little self-driving cars have horns in them not because the human's going to tap it but because the computer will use it as a way to signal to the other human drivers so what you're saying is basically for them to survive on the streets of new york or boston or la they will also have to have an animatronic arm that can extend and extend a middle finger towards uh, other drivers well actually one of the things they also said in the paper that was fascinating was that it's a uh, it's geography based uh reasoning so 
certain areas, horns are more important, like New York and, and Boston. And so the cars being driven there are, are more aggressive in using their horns than they are in California. Yeah. As, as someone who moved from downtown Boston to Seattle, I can tell you it is radically different when you, when you move across the country. Yeah. But also in the driving policy of how you merge, how you take a left, what happens when you come to four stop signs, how right. do you be aggressive or not? The thank you, the thank you wave and you know, all, all of these, those things. Yeah. yeah. So, so those are all being worked in. So on the, the prototype, one of the other things they were saying that they've been doing uh, on the cars is, is having redundant driving system and redundant braking. So oh, what does that mean? So, you know, there's, um, there's motors that actually will turn the steering column, which then turns the wheels. Uh, and most cars just have one power steering because if it fails, the human driver can, you know, it's as if the power steering is gone and they can drive. Right. But in a self-driving world and it's fully autonomous, if that one motor fails, then the car would be kaput. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> they now have a d- dual, um, uh, driving system and braking. So there's two braking systems as well. So if the primary brakes fail, there's backup. Similar to what happens in airplanes where there's multiple layers of redundancy for all primary systems um, and and uh, no vehicle to date uh, commercially had really been produced for in that manner. And right. so Google needed to start doing that because their cars don't have steering wheels and don't have brakes. They just have an emergency shutoff. Um, so, so, you know, that model is this little pod. It only goes 25 miles an hour right now. So it's intended for cities and that world is very much, you summon it, you get in it, it takes you where you want to go and you get out. It is, you know, the taxi of the future, the Johnny cab of the future. Um, and (laughs) I think it's like the most friendly looking vehicle you can, it it is Kawhi to the max. Yeah. And I think that is what's going to happen first. Um, from a fully, fully autonomous world. Those will be operating in a city somewhere, probably Mountain View first, or San Francisco, or New York. And uh, you will be able to summon one of these from Google's app um, or Uber, and uh, that's it. And you get in, and you get out, and you're done. Uh, You don't own it. And that way that if there's any issues, the manufacturer can fix them. They don't have to worry about sort of this backward compatibility problem because they can always just destroy all of them if they want to, uh, <laughs> if they need to repair something or fix something like it's under their control and they are completely liable for it anyways, because it's their vehicle. They didn't sell it to someone. Uh, they're also the operator. So it's a fully integrated model and in a fully integrated model, they're responsible anyways, the same way Uber and Airbnb and all these folks take out their own insurance policies because uh, the drivers and well, the riders are not going to tolerate um, having it be on their own insurance on that system. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think the way that that almost sounds municipal to me, too, mm-hmm. that kind of sounds like how a bus system might operate or a subway system that we have right now. Yep. And uh, why does that? I mean, I, I guess, why does it have to be municipal? Why does it have to be private? I, I think that opens into a, a lot of uh, public good areas. Mm-hmm. Well, and and what's interesting is Tesla has both hinted, and we've talked about this in the past, hinted at the fact that they may get into ride sharing, and that they're in a good position to do that. Um, and also that Elon Musk currently believes there's a better system than a bus, uh, and he hasn't revealed <laughs> what it is. There's the understatement of the year. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's not that revealing. Uh, I would be willing to bet a million dollars that I do not have that someone can come up with something better than a bus. 
I bet you're right. And I would, uh, I would not want to be on the other side of that bet <laughs> that even you could, yeah, that both of us could figure that out. Um, but it is sort of this idea of sort of these little pods coming together and moving in, in concert and coming off. So yeah, I feel like, um, there's definitely a lot of work on the future of what these cars will look like. Even Mercedes has some concept cars that they showed off at CES that are very sleek. Um, and they had, the, they had it driving around San Francisco last summer too. Yeah, they had, and it was a sort of silver bullet style thing, and the 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 front passenger and driver seat swiveled around so you could sort of talk to people in behind. So and it had the know, blue lights too. Why is every electronic vehicle or electric vehicle have have to have blue accents or blue lights or some something blue on it? I mean, blue is the future, the sci-fi future look. (laughs) Totally. People want to feel like this is a future car. It's a blue sky scenario, Caleb. Literally. Um, So, yeah, I feel like um, we've covered a lot tonight um, and uh, don't want to don't want to push the limits of the commute time. uh, I still think it's not dry. I think there's more autopilot to talk about. All right. I think we might have another one brewing and we'll, we'll see what the next episode is. But um, yeah, for, for anyone uh, who has any feedback, where can they uh, let us know, Mike? They can hit us up at our subreddit at r slash the Tesla show or on Twitter at, at the Tesla show. That's it. All I'm right. not sure why I just went into morning DJ mode right there. Well, <laughs> and you feels- can hit us at our the Tesla show. That's true. Um, yeah, we'll right. cut that out in post. We will not. Okay. <laughs> Talk to you later, Mike. All right. See you. Bye.